0: morning's lesson from the Old Testament is from various portions of Ezra chapter 7 and Ezra chapter 8. Please read with me. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalun, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of merai son of Zerihiah, Son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra, he went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Verse 7. They went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law. Of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach His statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and His statutes in Israel. It reads: Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or the priests or the Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. With all the gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money then you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings. You shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before God in Jerusalem. Whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury verse 27 Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Verse this is chapter 8 verse 21 Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted, and we implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Begin as we begin most weeks, speaking kind of to the children, but really this is to everybody. Because I, I was going gonna, gonna to ask, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, hand of God? I know there are some soccer fans among us. Yes, a lot of kids here like to play soccer, I know. A lot of adults enjoy the game as well. And so if you're a soccer or a football fan, what are you thinking of when you hear the phrase hand of God? Yes, young... Apparently handballed integral. Apparently handballed integral. So even if you don't know anything about soccer, I'm assuming most of us know that in soccer you're not allowed to use your hands. But, as Walter is referring to, in the 1986 World Cup, Argentina versus England, I believe it was in the quarterfinals, Diego, Diego Maradona, one of the greatest Argentine football players of all time, he scores a goal using his hand, which is you know not allowed, but because at that time, uh, technically, they don't have the video review that we have now. The referees did not have a clear view of the play and they, they allowed the goal and Argentina ends up winning 2-1. And listen to what uh, Maradona says after the game about his goal. He describes this goal as a little with the head of Maradona and a little with the hand of God. A little with the head, his head, and a little with the hand of God. And that's why this goal is now known as the hand of God. So that phrase, I think, by and large is associated with this football player, Maradona. My goal this morning is to shift our understanding of the hand of God away from Diego Maradona, 1986 World Cup quarterfinals, and to Ezra from the Bible. So in the future, when anybody says hand of God, you're going to first think of Ezra rather than the 1986 quarterfinals. All right, let's pray as we look into our story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would allow us to see your hand over all things and in all things, particularly in the life of this man, Ezra, your hand that was set upon him to fulfill the task that you set before him, to restore and establish your law in the land as you help us to see Ezra more clearly, that you help us to see Christ, for we know that Ezra points forward to Christ, that Christ is the fulfillment of all that Ezra sought to accomplish as your hand was upon him. And as we see Ezra, as we see Christ, may you help us to have a better understanding of your presence in our lives, your hand on our lives, in order that we might live more faithfully, more joyfully, following and serving you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, to begin this morning, I'd like to remind us of the three principles that we, I've shared about um, how the New Testament authors, how Jesus and the other authors in the New Testament, how they teach us to read the Old Testament as Christians. And my goal in doing that is not just so that we would better understand Ezra and Nehemiah, but really the goal is that it's, it's to teach you how to read the Bible. Teach you how to read the Old Testament. We make it a point of emphasis here at Tarrytown Christian Church to always preach from the scriptures, Old and New Testaments. But even if you stay here 50 years of your life, there's no way that we can go through the entire Old Testament. Much of your uh, interaction with scripture, your reading of God's word, will be outside of the church. And so these principles are things to be thinking of in order to help you understand as you read the Bible on your own, with your family, with various other peoples, of how we to understand the Old Testament as Christians. So if you recall, principle number one, the Old Testament is for you, written for you, for your encouragement and your hope, but it is not first, first and foremost about you. What is it about? Principle number two, the Old Testament bears witness about Jesus and finds its ultimate fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about principle number three. The Old Testament people of God are a microcosm of the entire world's conscience before God. Meaning, in ancient Israel, we see the heart of every individual, me, you, everyone, displayed in the history of an entire people. And this morning, I'd like to briefly expand, expand on principle number two, which is Old Testament bears witness about Jesus and finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. One way that an author describes the way in which the Old Testament bears witness about Jesus is what he calls promised-shaped patterns. Promise-shaped patterns. This means that the way that the Old Testament bears witness about Jesus is more than just like a handful of isolated verses or prophecies that you might find in the Old Testament. For example, um, during Christmas time, A very popular prophecy about Jesus is found in the book of Isaiah that says the virgin shall bear a child. And this is an Old Testament prophecy that points forward to the life of Jesus. But we need to understand that the way that the Old Testament points forward to Jesus is not simply a verse here in Isaiah, maybe a verse in Deuteronomy, verses here and there spread throughout the Bible. It's the entirety. Everything in the Old Testament. All the people all the events, all the institutions of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The one that we're going to focus on this morning is the people of the Old Testament. So if you look at all the people of the Old Testament, the particular leaders of the Old Testament, they generally fall into three categories. All the leaders of the Old Testament fall into one of three categories. They're either a prophet, a priest, or a king. This is a common way of uh, kind of dividing the different kinds of leaders in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. And when we talk about promised shaped patterns, this means that every one of the prophets, every one of the priests, and every one of the kings of the Old Testament shapes our expectations and perceptions of what a true prophet is like, and a true king, and a true priest So both in their shortcomings as well as in their successes, all of these leaders of the Old Testament contribute to a pattern that points forward to the ideal king or the ideal prophet or the ideal priest. And the surprise of the New Testament, if you could call it a surprise, is that all of those characters, all of those figures are fulfilled in just one person, Jesus Christ, who is the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Is Ezra is a prophet? a priest, but he is pointing forward to the true priest, who is Jesus. So if you recall, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's a story of a 100-year rebuilding project. So longer than any individual's lifespan, Ezra and Nehemiah covers about 100 years of the people of God as they return from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem in attempt to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The story centers on three main characters, each who is responsible for one main task. So Ezra 1 through 6, that we've talked about this past two weeks, talks about the rebuilding of the temple, and that's led by the figure of Zerubbabel. Here in Ezra chapter 7, we're finally introduced to the title character of the book, Ezra, and he is tasked with restoring the law, and then in a few weeks we'll begin talking about Nehemiah, who's tasked with rebuilding the temple and reestablishing the community in Jerusalem. Um, So just to let you know, between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7, there's about a 60-year gap. So the task of rebuilding the temple takes about 25 years. 60 years pass in the story when Ezra comes on the scene. This is about 80 years after the first group of people have returned from exile. So Ezra is part of a second group of people who come from Babylon back to Israel. And the rest of the story from Ezra chapter 7 all the way to the end of the book of Nehemiah, takes place in about 25 years. Okay, So that 100-year period is kind of like two chunks of time. 20 years rebuilding the temple, 60-year gap, and then another 20-25 years of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in these first six verses of Ezra chapter 7 that we read for us, we learn four things about Ezra. And the last of the things that we learned about Ezra is what's most important. So first, what do we learn about Ezra? Verses 1 through 5. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Soriah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mary son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. So why this long lineage? All these names. It tells us that Ezra comes from the right kind of family. So, in the Old Testament, in order to be a priest, you have to come from a priestly family. So the priestly office is hereditary. You can't be a priest unless your father and their father and their father was a priest. We find that not only is Ezra from a priestly family, but he is from the priestly family. Meaning, he is descended from Aaron, Moses' brother, the first chief high priest of Israel. So he... Basically, this is saying Ezra is from one of the leading families of all of ancient Israel. Ezra comes from the right kind of family. Not only that, but Ezra's smart. He's talented. We read in verse 6, This Ezra, this Ezra from the line of Aaron, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So Ezra is not just someone who's born into the right family. And then... Doesn't really work in his life, kind of rests on his laurels. But Ezra is born into a right family, but he works hard and he shows talent in the family business. He's singled out as someone who's skilled in the law, meaning not only that he can understand the law, but that he's able to communicate it and teach it to other people. So Ezra comes from the right family. He's smart and he's talented. The third thing he learned is Ezra has all the right connections. Verse 6. The king granted him all that he asked. Ezra is connected to King Artaxerxes of Persia. Now at this time, Persia is the dominant empire in the entire world, meaning King Artaxerxes is probably the most powerful person, single individual in the world at that time. So I'm sure many of you heard the phrase, it's not what you know, but it's who you know. And if that's true in any sense, then Ezra has it made. Ezra knows all the right people. He has the favor of the king. The king grants everything that he asks. So Ezra, this priest and scribe, he comes from the right family. He's very smart and talented. He has all the right connections. But the most important thing that we need to know about Ezra is the last thing that we're told about him in verse 6. It says, Ezra, all these things happened because, or for, the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. The hand of God is upon Ezra. In fact, six times in the next two chapters, Ezra 7 and 8, we are told that the hand of God is on Ezra. That's what the author of the book wants us to know about this man. That even though he was born and given every advantage into his life, what's most important about him is that the hand of God is on him. So this morning we're going to ask, what does the life look like of someone... Whose hand God is upon. And we see three things. Number one, they study, do, and teach the word of God. Number two, they pray, trust in the Lord, and live lives of integrity. And number three, they bless the Lord. So first, number one, when God's hand is upon someone, they study, do, and teach the word of God. Ezra chapter seven, verse ten. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So part of Ezra's mission is to establish what we we might call the rule of law in the province beyond the river. So I think you'll see it various times throughout Ezra and Nehemiah the province beyond the river. This is the Persian way of describing the province that Jerusalem and the surrounding lands are in. So basically what we would call today Israel or Judah. The so part of Ezra's mission is to establish the rule of law according to Torah in the province beyond the river. King Artaxerxes appoints the scribe Ezra, who as we know is skilled in the Torah, and who is committed to knowing and doing teaching God's word to establish the law according to God's righteous commands. Ezra chapter 7 verse 25 through 26 then says this. This is King Artaxerxes in his command to Ezra. Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that's in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them you shall teach, and whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So the situation seems to be something like this, right? 80 years before Ezra, a group of people come back from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple in 20 years. But despite rebuilding the temple, we find that the situation they're in now is they're not living according to what is found in God's law, the Torah. And this might not... This shouldn't come a surprise, as a surprise to us, because if you think about it, so many laws that are in the Torah are based on worship around a temple. Well, when Babylon takes them to exile, there's no longer a temple So how do you follow a whole system of laws based on the temple when there is no temple? Not only that, when they go back into the land, we find that they're surrounded by people who do not follow and worship Yahweh, their God, according to the Torah. Do you remember all those people from all over the empire who had been resettled into the land in which they intermarry, which is what we're going to talk about next week, but they intermarry with all these people in the land, bringing different cultures, different religions and so they find themselves in a situation where the laws of god are not being followed in the land of god even though there's a temple this reminds us that the spiritual renewal of god's people always includes a renewal or return to god's word building the temple is not enough the people need to be renewed by god's word and this is a task that god sets before ezra to establish the words of the law and to help bring about the spiritual renewal of of God's people by studying, doing, and teaching the word of God to his people. So first, when God's hand is upon someone, they study, do, and teach God's word to others. And secondly, when God's hand is upon someone, they pray, they trust in the Lord, they live lives of integrity. We see this in Ezra chapter 8, verse 21 through 23. Ezra proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava. So the river Ahava is a place very close to uh, Babylon. Just a 12 days journey from Babylon, they stopped by the river Ahava. Why did they stop? They stopped in order that they may humble themselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for themselves and their children and all our goods. Why? Ezra says, I was ashamed to ask the king for help for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy, since we have told the king, the hand of our God is for good on those who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So in our story, Ezra has a problem, and it's a good problem to have. But basically, the king has been so generous to Ezra and the people of God, giving so many donations, that Ezra has a problem. How are we going to safely get everything the king has donated to us from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem? Now, what did the king donate? The good needing to be transported from Babylon to Jerusalem are about 25 tons of silver and 3.75 tons of gold. Now, we don't know exactly... The relative worth of silver and gold at that time period. But if we just take like today's numbers about what silver and gold is worth, I looked it up. Twenty-five tons of silver is worth in today's dollars about twenty-seven and a half million dollars. Three point seven five tons of gold is worth about one hundred seventy-five million dollars. So you add those two together, the king has given two hundred million dollars worth of goods to Ezra to transport the nine hundred miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, 900 miles, that's about from here to Atlanta going east or Phoenix going west. And we're told that this journey takes about four months, four and a half months. So the situation is, you're Ezra, you have $200 million that you're responsible for, and you need to transport it from here to Atlanta or Phoenix. And there's no such thing as highway patrol. There's no police officers. Everybody at, in the ancient world is responsible for your own security. So wouldn't the wisest course of action be to ask the king to help? I mean, it's obvious the king's going to help. He's already given you all these donations. It wouldn't be that much more to ask for some security detail. A bring's truck, an armed guard, an escort to help you along the way. But what... What does Ezra say? Why does Ezra not choose to have an armed escort or armed guards from the king? Because he's ashamed. Bible says he's ashamed to ask the king for help because he already boldly told the king that the hand of the Lord our God is upon us. That that God protects those who seek him, and that his wrath is upon those who reject him. And if that's true, then Ezra says we don't need an armed escort. God himself will protect them and bring them safely to arrive in Jerusalem. Ezra recognizes that if he were to request a band of soldiers and horsemen to guard their party, then it could be interpreted as a lack of trust in God. So he says, no, we're good. We don't need a band of soldiers. We don't need horsemen. We need to pray. He says, they implored God. They fasted. They implored God. And God listened to their entreaty. Ezra prays not because he's not sure whether the hand of God is upon him, but because he knows that it is. It's Ezra's confidence that God's hand is upon him that compels him to pray. Now, kind of one caveat is we need to be careful not to be overly dogmatic and not to say that it's always wrong to ask for a police escort, to ask for security, to ask for help. Because we find that later in our story, in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah is in a very similar situation as Ezra. He's needing to go back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And this is what it says about Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. And the author of the book of Nehemiah doesn't say that that was a bad thing that that was an expression of a lack of faith on Nehemiah's part. Certain situations will require wisdom in discerning whether it is best to ask for the help or to trust in the Lord. What it does mean for us, however, I think, is that we always, constantly need to be asking if the things in our lives reflect our stated beliefs you see, I was kind of the crux of the issue. It's not that Ezra didn't trust God, it was he was worried that his witness would be affected to the king based on his actions. Ezra's outward actions are in alignment with his professed faith, particularly as it relates to his outward witness. So the question is, are our actions in accord with the words that we speak? In the things that we claim to believe. You see, those on whom the Lord places his hand live lives of integrity, meaning they're not hypocrites. Their outward actions reflect their stated beliefs. Their faith is not lip service. So a little later in the service, we'll declare, as we do every week, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. This is an acknowledgement that God created all things, and because God created all things, he owns all things all things belong to him and we are merely stewards. So the question we must ask is, do our actions reflect our belief that all things belong to God? All of our time, energy, and resources are his and that we are merely stewards. that He's entrusted those things to us in order to serve and worship him. We'll say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Acknowledging that we trust in Jesus not only to save us for our sins, but as Lord of our lives meaning we live our lives in obedience to his commands and his desires and not our own. So the question is, do others in my life, whether at work, in the home, in our community, do they know this to be true? Is it clear by my life and my outward actions that I believe in Jesus? I love our communion liturgy at the very end what do we declare Jesus died. Jesus has risen. Jesus will come again. Do I live my life with his perspective? That Jesus will return. And as he says, not only will he return, but he could return at any moment. And in so many parables, he says, live as if Christ could come at any moment. Do we live this way? Do we live acknowledging that Christ could return at any moment Are our lives focused on the things that will last or on the things that will pass? See, those upon whom God's hand is on live lives of integrity in which their outward actions reflect their stated beliefs. That's how Ezra lives. And lastly, number three, when God's hand is upon someone, they bless the Lord. Verse 27 of 28 of chapter 7 Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So this is great. Ezra recognizes so clearly in his life that the favor that he receives from the king in his life is a direct result of the steadfast love of the Lord. You see, he he doesn't attribute his success or his favor to anything else, right? He didn't he didn't say because I came from the right family, because I'm smart, I'm talented, I'm gifted, because I have the right connections those are not the reasons why Ezra understands he's received favor and success in his life. What does he say instead? He says, blessed be the Lord. He praises the Lord. He gives thanks to the Lord. He worships him because he acknowledges, as we saw a couple weeks ago, Proverbs 21.1, that the heart of the king is like a river in the Lord's hands. It says, blessed be the Lord, the God of fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord. Meaning God placed the desire to help Ezra and the people of God into the king's heart. The question is, do you understand your own life in this same way? Do you interpret any of the blessings in your life as anything other than the hand of the God upon you? The favor that you've received at work and the successes that you've accomplished. Yes, of course, you may have worked very hard. You might have had all the right connections, you're very smart, you're very talented, just like Ezra, in so many ways, so many of us are reflected in the life of Ezra and those things. God has blessed us so tremendously. Yet do we understand all those things as not coming from ourselves? but as the hand of God upon us. Being born into and raised in a Christian family, tremendous blessing. The very circumstances of your life have led you to where you are now. Do you receive all these blessings in your life as the hand of God upon you? Because Ezra recognizes the hand of God in his life, he blesses the Lord, and it says he has courage. You should read that. He says, Blessed be the Lord, He extended to me a steadfast love before the king and his counselors so that the king was gracious to him and gave him favor. And as a result, he says, I took courage. For the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me. So because Ezra recognizes the hand of God in his life, he blesses the Lord, he thanks the Lord, and he has courage. More courage to trust in the Lord continually and take greater and greater steps of faith. Do you know this courage? Do you know this confidence that we can have to take steps of faith and trust in the Lord because you're convinced that the steadfast love of the Lord, his hand, is upon you? So Ezra, as I mentioned at the very beginning, he contributes to this promised shape pattern that I was talking about in principle number two that the Old Testament bears witness about Jesus and finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Because the takeaway this morning, I think the temptation can often be, well, we just got to be more like Ezra. I need to try to read and study the Bible more. Right? I need to try to acknowledge that every part of my life is because of God's hand upon me. I need to pray more. I need to trust in the Lord more. I need to live a, more of a life of integrity. And I would say those are all very good desires. We should want those things. But the way in which we need to read the Old Testament is not to first directly say, okay, I just need to be more like Ezra. But to understand that there was someone already who was a true and greater Ezra, a better Ezra. So if we look at Ezra's life, the things that we saw, the person whose hand God is upon he studies and does and teaches the word of God. Can you see how Jesus might be the true and greater Israel? I'm sorry, Ezra. For Jesus not only studies, does, and teaches the word of God, but the Bible tells us that Jesus is the very word of God. The word of God made flesh, and he provides the true and final interpretation of the law, which is why the Sermon on the Mount, which is oftentimes pointed to as you know Jesus' greatest teachings, what does he often say? when talking about the Old Testament law. He says, you have heard it said, you've been taught a certain way, but I say to you, meaning Jesus offers the true and final interpretation of God's law. He not only studies and does the law, but he's the end of the law. He's what the law is always pointing toward. Ezra prays, Ezra trusts in the Lord, Ezra lives a life of integrity. But does anyone ever pray and trust the Lord like our Lord Jesus did? We can just look at his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's crucified, and what does he say? He says, not my will, but yours be done. If we say that living a life of integrity means that your outward actions reflect your stated beliefs, Is there anyone other than Jesus that that describes better? Jesus lived a life of integrity in service to others. And lastly, Ezra blesses the Lord. Ezra blesses the Lord because he recognizes that the hand of God is upon his life. But Jesus too recognizes that he can do nothing apart from God's will. John 5, 19 says this, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This is Jesus and the Father are so connected that Jesus cannot do anything apart from the will of the Father. So you see, we, we have Ezra. We have this uh, amazing scribe and priest, this exemplary character. But as we're going to see next week, despite all these things, despite the fact that he studies and does and teaches the Word of God, despite the fact that he prays, trusts in the Lord, and lives a life of integrity, despite the fact that he blesses the Lord in all things and recognizes God's hand upon him, he cannot solve the people's biggest problems. See, that's what a priest is supposed to do. A priest in the Old Testament is supposed to reconcile, or be a gap, a bridge between God and people. But despite Ezra's best efforts, we will find that he is unable to solve the true problem of the sins of the people. And as we've been talking about this past couple of weeks, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we find that the king is still missing and the people are still in exile. Which is why the promise-shaped pattern of the Old Testament says that Ezra points to a true and greater priest, who's Jesus. Jesus does all of these things so that if you believe and trust in him, the hand of God can rest upon you as well. Jesus is the great high priest who takes away all of your sin, who makes it possible that you can have a relationship with God in order that you might be able to do all these things as well, in order that you might know the hand of God upon your life and that your life might reflect that accordingly. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says this, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We do thank you for the example of Ezra. Particularly how he lived such a life of integrity, how he trusted in you, how he sought to uh, be an example and a witness of faith and trust even before the king of Persia. And we thank you for how Ezra points to the true and greater high priest who is Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, the one whose prayers you always answer, and who always acts according to your will. We're humble to know, Lord, that your will was that your Son should die for us in order that we might be restored to true life, in order that we might know your hand and your presence in our lives, in order that we might have confidence in our faith, to know that nothing can separate us from your love because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father God, I pray that you would empower us by your spirit, that we might trust more and more in Jesus every day, in order that we might live lives that greater reflect your desire, your purposes, and your will in our lives. And may we encourage one another toward that end each day. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.